My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Ells for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I'm also autistic. This is our 24th episode of the podcast, Women in Autism, with special guest Dr. Aaron Lazat, Director of Programs, and Tracy Cohn, author, speaker, and long-distance runner. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Now, here are some news and updates about the foundation. For the first update, tune into our last episode, episode 23, where we talked to Jen Smith, our mental health contractor and facilitator, along with author, mental health specialist, and professor Ron Sanderson, who is one of our advisory board members. In that episode, we spoke about being married with kids while being autistic, how individuals with ASD can create strong relationships, and perhaps how they can even find love. Make sure to listen to the whole program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. Now, the second session of programs. While March has brought a lull of our rec programs for two weeks, it is to prepare for what session two will be for our programs. Session two will begin in late March with our much-loved programs like music therapy, tennis, and dance. Please be sure to speak to our new rec coordinator, Greg Connors, for more details. We still have volunteer positions for individuals for spring, our second session of programs. On our website, you will find all available positions and a way to apply to any of these. Positions include golf, yoga, tennis, and dance. Make sure to contact me for more details. March is International Women's Day. Well, I call it a month, and because of that, I thought that it would be good to have a written interview with board member Isabel Izzy Ponicki, who co-founded Girl Again, which focuses on giving women with autism the ability to succeed in a business that sells American Girl dolls and accessories. Make sure to read the interview when it comes out. It should be informative, insightful, and compelling. World Autism Month. In February, the advisory board and some of my coworkers decided that Autism Awareness Month should be renamed to World Autism Month, which is technically relevant to this podcast. We are planning a lot of things to get ready for for the month, so make sure to check our social media channels, our website, and our Golf Challenge site for more details and information. We hope to see any of our listeners to participate in celebrating WAM or WAM. All right, everyone. I would like to uh, welcome our audience to a very, um, a very good personality within the autism community. 
Her name is Tracy Cohn, and she is a lifelong educator, competitive runner, freelance writer, and return Peace Corps volunteer who was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of 39. Sharing our own uh, struggles and discoveries, it was her intention with her first book, Six Word Lessons on Female Asperger's Syndrome, and her newest book, My Life on the Autism Spectrum, Misunderstandings, Insight, and Growth to Empower Others to Learn, Accept, and Find Peace in Our Ever-Complicated Neurotypical World. In her second book, Six Word Lessons on the Sport of Running, 100 Lessons to Enjoy Running for a Lifetime, she strives to empower every individual to discover the many benefits of running, even those hidden beneath the surface. With a proper mindset, training, and equipment, you can develop strength and endurance, both physical and mental, and tackle challenging feats you never imagined, taking your running to new heights while building lasting friendships. On September 11th, 2017, she received the greatest honor of her life from the Ted Lindsay Foundation as a proud and extremely grateful and humbled recipient of the Ted Lindsay Individual Chords Award, which I will showcase on our show notes. She currently lives in Farmington Hills, Michigan with her treasured Labrador retriever, Bailey Kennedy. And if you have any questions, comments, and speaking opportunities, you can contact her at Tracy at growingupautistic.com. Thank you, Mara. Anything you want to add to that, Nate? Yeah, just uh, a big thanks to Tracy for joining us this evening. You know, your uh, accomplishments speak for themselves, certainly. And um, we're really ex excited uh, and happy to be speaking with you. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate all the kind words and um, appreciate you having me. I know there are a lot of... Um, worthy people doing a lot of great work in our autism community, which is, um, you know, um, much improved from um, when I was a child and diagnosed with autism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, um, it's been said that women with autism generally receive later diagnoses than males. Considering you got you received a diagnosis at the age of 39. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that is and also how we can get women with ASD diagnosed earlier? Yeah, yeah. so there are a number of reasons, I, I believe. Um, first off is um, females tend to be better communicators than males. And um, we tend to be quieter and more willing to try to please. And so we tend to be um, less hostile, less aggressive, less likely to raise red flags. And, um, you know, any, anything that seems, you know, immature or off, um, at least with me, you know, they kind of chalk up to, you know, being immature. And um, a lot is not, is still not known about the female expression. And um, I, I think there, there needs to be a lot of, a lot more education about females. You know, the, the face of, of autism has traditionally been male. Um, still, you know, when I hear different, you know, advertisements and, you know, see different, you know, 
pictures of autism. It's it's typically male dominated, and um, you know people um, and professionals, families, individuals included um, need more education that you know the female expression might look different than males um and we we do a lot of masking um but it doesn't mean that um we don't need help and that we're we're not out there um and uh you know professionals especially really um need to be educated about um not only detecting um females but also using the the proper tools to um, to diagnose. You just can't diagnose. Um, I know my my journey to um, to diagnosis was a bit rocky, and I I didn't know anything about um, choosing someone. I didn't understand that um, you know just like people, not all professionals um, are are aware of the same things. And um, uh, so professionals need to understand that females um, can't be, especially adult females, can't be di di diagnosed in the same way that, um, you know, a male, especially a, a young male might, might be diagnosed. And also, I, I think in general, there needs to be, um, you know, shame should not be in the same, you know, sentence or, you know, realm as, as autism. And um, I think, you know, people need to um, understand that, um, you know, they, they don't need, they don't need to hide. Um, and they know, don't need to be ashamed. Um, everybody has challenges. So, um, <laughs> no, yeah. I said quite a mouthful, but um, no, that, go ahead. that's really well said altogether. I do think that having role models like yourself will play a great role in helping people or helping, you know, um, females with autism to, um, you know, feel more at peace with the diagnosis and, you know, continue to just thrive with it and continue to seek out their goals. But also, um, yeah, you, you brought up a lot of interesting points about the professional field and society not being as aware of how, um, you know, autism presents differently in females. And I can speak personally that, um, you know, in my training, I would say that the profile of, of autism was very often um, presented as a, a male-based condition and, and kind of like a hyper-expression of some male traits. So I think this is a really important um, interview that we're doing and an important message to get across. Thank you. Um, and if I if I may just add just a, a couple more things. Of course. Um, yeah. So, you know, the other thing that um, I feel very strongly is about, you know, 
you know, families and professionals, they, they need to listen and, and not assume. Um, I had an experience with um, it just uh, a, a, a medical professional, just I had gone for um, for a, a physical and it was a new doctor. And um, I took the chance on sharing um, just because I thought it might um it might, you know, help better our relationship. Um, he seemed, you know, open and willing to, to listen. And when I told him that I had autism, he looked at me with a very condescending expression. And he said to me, he said, no, you don't. <laughs> and he's like, who, who told you that? And then he questioned the, um, you know, he, he questioned and criticized the, the person who, diagnosed me not not knowing them and not knowing anything anything about them and his comment to me was well i have a niece with autism and you're nothing like her and you know he he, he went on to talk about different things that his you know niece couldn't do and it's like because i was communicating you know i had no struggles and it was all easy for me but again people need to listen and they need to not assume he doesn't know where I came from. He doesn't know the, you know, the inner turmoil that's going on inside of me when, you know, when I'm going about my day and um, he doesn't see the breakdown that happens every day in private. Um, I'm kind of the, I guess, maybe typical. I mean, we're, we're all different, but um, from the time I was little, I've always aim to please and not be a problem. And so, you know, what can I say? That's, um, I, I believe in sharing, which is why I, I, I do what I do, you know, for the betterment of, of other people. But other than that, um, I, you know, try to keep things to myself. Um, it's just my way. Huh? Yeah. Thank you. I, sorry for interrupting. Um, I, I think that that doctor's response to your uh, sharing is very typical. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if that's how many individuals or many doctors and the like see women with ASD. Um, you know, I, I have to say um, that when I was a lot younger, you could definitely see a lot more of my symptoms. Um, and I've mentioned this, I mentioned this before plenty of times because I think that some people may not completely believe it, but when I was a lot younger, I would hug people I didn't know. Uh, my motor skills were severely delayed. Um, there are parts of my language, parts of my, uh, of, of me that, you know, I would do the stereotypical hand flapping or arm flapping or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, um, just because someone knows a person at a certain age or, you know, thinks that they know a person inside and out does not mean that they really know the person. Yeah. And it's rather unfortunate and very disappointing that instead of being, you know, compassionate to your managing to share the side of you, because, you know, it's it's a 
it's a really important part of you. And I, I think that it's really important that the doctor studies the whole person. And that also includes something like ASD. And it's just disappointing that your doctor didn't seem to at all be interested or be, you know, or, or, or be friendly to what you're, you were sharing with them. Yeah. And, and what you said um, goes also for, for, you know, uh, teachers, for, for, for families um, and, and just people in general. I can't tell you how many times um, I've had people you know, say to me, oh, no, you're not, or, um, well, I'm just like you, or, um, or, or say something to the effect of, you know, maybe because they, um, and I'm, you know, I don't claim to be, you know, perfect or, or anything else, but because I, I try to please, and I, I try to make other people more comfortable. I've, you know, had many, parents and different different people say, you know, oh, you know, they might be talking about their son or their daughter or, you know, a niece or someone they know. Or, and they, they say how, oh, well, it's so much easier for you because maybe, you know, they, they see or their experience with someone else is, you know, maybe they don't communicate as well or maybe they, they see the hand flapping. And again, they they're making assumptions and um, ra- rather than, rather than listening and understanding, um, you know, that um, it's, it's, it's not easy. I'm working very hard to make them comfortable and, and, you know, be professional and, and just, just succeed in the world. Yeah. It shouldn't really be what the other people you see, uh, especially if they're acquaintances, it shouldn't really be their value that takes precedence. Yeah. It should really be what's inside yourself. And, you know, the, the opinions of the people who you trust the most, not someone who goes, oh, you can't be that. Oh, you can't be that. And oh, it, oh, sure. I, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I just meant that I think it's, it can be those types of, attitudes and assumptions, um, I think it can be damaging to, you know, autism and, and, and females and getting diagnosed and getting the help needed, um, you know, when, when, when that happens, that, that was kind of all that I meant. Yeah. I, I, I apologize if it seemed like, you know, I, I was uh, getting a little bit beyond um, everything that's that's going on. Oh no! And um, uh, again, I of course it you know it it shouldn't be about what other people think, and um, you know that's that would be a you know something personal for me. That I I just meant that um, you know kind of to your point that you think that the the doctor who said that to me was. Um, that that the attitude was wrong i was just maybe took it a step too far sharing that um i hear and see that type of attitude from you know doctors teachers you know other professionals as well as you know just different individuals in the community yeah 
Yeah, it also shows from his perspective a lack of understanding of the diversity within the spectrum, which is, you know, disappointing on another level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, everyone thinks that, you know, if someone is profoundly affected by ASD or something like that, that's like one of the few examples that exists in their mind. And they can't think of someone who's successful, who, you know, is is greatly successful and is able to, you know, maneuver things in, in such a, how can I say it, in such a way that they that they don't even consider uh, the wide, broad uh, array of different types of people with the condition. And, you know, I didn't, I also don't mean to get stuck on the, the negative. I mean, there, there are wonderful um, people out there who, who do understand professionals and, you know, parents, community members, you know, alike. It, it just, um, you know, relevant to the question, I guess I was sharing some of the negative. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate, I, I think we both appreciate the anecdote because it is very telling, you know, we could talk about statistics um, or our perceptions all day, but stories, you know, they speak volumes to, to the issue at large. Yeah. And, um, and statistics don't mean a whole lot. It depends on, on who you talk to and kind of like you were saying, how do we get more, more females di- the, you know, the, the correct diagnosis? statistics don't tell anything it might just tell that many of us haven't been diagnosed yeah very true so i'm going to shift gears a little bit and i want to ask you what led you to become the lead program facilitator and developmental coordinator at full spectrum agency for autistic adults and what is your philosophy in your work there. Okay. So it's everything with me is a, is a bit of a, a story. I'll, I'll try to keep it as, as brief as possible. Um, so back when the pandemic started in 2020, I was furloughed from my job. And um, I, you know, it was pretty devastating. But, um, you know, I finally kind of got myself together and I, I used the time, I actually used the time to, um, to finish and publish my, um, my third book. But um, in addition to that, um, you know, I, as things started improving, um, you know, I, I knew I needed to, to get back to work and I wasn't, um, I didn't have, it didn't, I haven't heard anything from the job I was furloughed. They, they had, you know, promised that they'd be bringing us back, but, you know, still pretty much no word every time I would, I would check in. Um, it was just a big question mark. And so, um, you know, I, I try to always be open to opportunity and, you know, keep my eyes open and do my research and um, I found an opportunity for a paid internship through um, JVS. It's a it's a nonprofit here um, in in Michigan, 
and um, I I inquired about it. Short of it is, um, I it was it was my job to to reach out to different you know organizations um, where I thought I might be a good fit, and um, uh, I reached out to Katie Aswell, the form the founder and executive director of Full Spectrum Agency for Autistic Adults, and I. You know, I, I kind of let her know um, the opportunity I had and asked if she would be interested. And um, it, I, I knew Katie, I didn't know her well, but I met her um, at different conferences when we were, or really it was just one other conference where we both were presenters. Um, actually, we were on the same panel. And um, she she really liked the idea, and she actually had been wanting to create um, a social skills training specifically for um, people on the spectrum, and different from what had been out there, what people on the spectrum, um, you know, based on feedback she she had gotten. So, um, with my education background, um, she, you know. Um, she said that that's, you know, what she would like me to do. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how things came about. Um, you know, I, um, it's, I think it's, it's very hard and I'm not patting myself on the back because I, I really struggle, but it's very hard to keep in mind that even when things seem at their lowest, um, you know, I, I've always, dislike change but when things are at their lowest know that things can change and it, it, it can be a, a good thing and um i took a chance i found an opportunity and um it it really it really worked out wonderfully um unfortunately so i i, I did create the social skills curriculum as well as facilitate um some some different peer support groups um, and the curriculum I created, um, I taught the first module of it. Um, the second module is being taught now. Unfortunately, because of um, some dire family circumstances that um, came about that I'm still um, trying to manage and help my family, um, I had to step back from, from my work. Um, but the, the curriculum remains. And um, hopefully when things calm a bit, I will be one of the facilitators again. But, um, but we've gotten um, very good feedback and um, we've um, partnered with um, uh, the Autism Division of Oakland University again here in Michigan. And um, I'm, I, I feel sad that I've had to step back from my work, but also um, very pleased that um, things are moving forward and that um, that people are benefiting from it. And um, in terms of my philosophy in in my work, um, I guess it's kind of the the same philosophy I, I have in life. Um, I believe that everybody has the ability to learn. Um, everybody is you know, is different and has, has different needs and, um, you know, different ways of learning. And, you know, we should never cookie cut anybody. And sometimes people might 
need a little more help in different areas. But um, it's our job as, you know, facilitators and, you know, in creating a curriculum to, um, to, make, to make that time and, and to reach out and to find a way to, 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 meet, to meet the needs. Um, and while I've, you know, learned to develop some, some tact, I also believe in, you know, in, in being very honest with individuals. Um, honesty can be a hard pill to swallow, but I believe if it's done with good intentions, and um, with kindness, um, I, I believe it can be, you know, very, very helpful, very beneficial. I know in my own experience, um, I have found out, you know, after the fact that I've, you know, I've offended somebody or I've made some type of, you know, social mistake or, you know, something like that. And I've been very confused because, you know, I, I've tried to be careful. I've tried, you know, I'm, I'm a pleaser, but nobody would, you know, even, even if I, you know, kind of asked some questions in, in the moment, you know, nobody would give me, you know, an example or let me know honestly. And so it's, it's much harder to understand your, you know, mistakes or what might have come off the wrong way to others when, you know, kind of white lies are told just because um, someone doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings or they, um, you know, they don't want to make the bother of, um, of you know, being, being honest about things. Um, so I, I'm not saying there are necessarily negative intentions all the time but i i think if we're willing to you know help others and be more honest with others i i think it would um take away a lot of the miscommunication um not only in the world of autism but in the world in general yeah it's a really nice message and um you know i've very fascinating to hear about your work and the lasting impact that it's having. Thank you. So my last question, I was hoping you could uh, let us know about 10 of your favorite six word lessons from your book, six word lessons on female Asperger syndrome. Yeah. Um, sure. I, um, that's a that's a bit of a hard question because you know each each yeah um, each one I, I wrote for a a specific a specific reason and um, you know each one is gonna resonate differently with people and that's um, that's one of the reasons that I wrote it as well as you know uh, a lasting resource because something might not resonate with somebody one day, but then they have more experience, um, you know, move to a different stage of life, have different insights, and then they can come back and, you know, it, um, it might resonate a, a little more. So um, would you like, what I was going to do was um, pick a lesson um, from 
each chapter and I thought I would um, tell what chapter it was from and the lesson. Um, does, does that sound like a good plan? That sounds great to me. And I completely understand you probably want to choose all of them as your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not trying to, you know, um, give myself more, more credit, but just, yeah, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in my work and, um, I put a lot into each lesson. So yeah, each one, um, means a lot to me and I, I hope, um, you know, is, is a value to each person who decides to, um, to pick up my book. Um, and also with, with each, with each lesson, um, is also um, a 40 the 60 word description after. Would, would you like me to read that 40 the 60 word description as well? Yeah, I think that that works. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Okay. Um, so from the first chapter on detecting early signs of Asperger's syndrome, I picked out lesson number six. Even, even small changes can be devastating. Aspies thrive on routine and do not tolerate even the smallest of changes. As a very young child, my parents determined to replace the old stained carpet in my bedroom. Thought, thought my fierce resistance was that of a defiant toddler. They did not realize that taking away my familiar carpet was stripping me of my security. So I, I can expand on <laughs> on each lesson, but um, that, that would probably take a while. So um, I can, you know, I can kind of keep moving on unless um, you have any questions or like, or would like me to say anything more about it. Yeah, they, I know they definitely are profound on their own. Um, we'll, we'll chime in if we have questions or want to add anything. How's that? That sounds yeah. perfect. Thank you. Um, Okay, uh, so from the next chapter, why are females missed in diagnosis? Lesson number 18, or excuse me, lesson number 17, our confidence makes achievements appear effortless. Females often more than males are proficient at and care more about earning good grades, emulating socially acceptable behavior, and receiving the approval of their peers. What is frequently overlooked is the effort it takes to achieve what is perceived to be normal. I still melt down daily due to overwhelming stress involved in getting through each day. Okay. And from the chapter, Seeking Diagnosis as an Adult Woman, How to Find a Qualified Therapist. Um, excuse me. Uh, I'm sorry. I actually, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to read um, uh, lesson number 27. Find a professional familiar with women. Diagnoses and therapists are not one size fits all. Before seeking diagnosis, take time to research professionals who understand the differences between males and females and have the tools needed to diagnose adults versus children. Like medical doctors, therapists practice in various specialties. 
and from inside the soul of, of an Aspie. Excuse me. Is lesson number 36. Don't ask if truth isn't required. When asked a question, we believe an honest answer is required, not placating another's ego. Keep in mind our literal minds. Keeping in mind our literal minds, it's important to understand we are not being unkind if, for example, we answer, no, I don't like your haircut, as we are simply, simply answering the question asked. It is not in our nature to speak untruths because that is seen as counterproductive. And in social skills, a complex learning process, lesson number 46, practice helps, does not make perfect. Socializing may not get easier for Aspies, but avoidance makes it more difficult. Frequency allows for learning, motivations, and friendships to thrive. Advanced research of potential conversation topics, appropriate dress code, exit strategy if needed proves helpful. Success enables pride. Difficulties amount to differences and should not dissuade us from living life to our fullest potential. Okay. And navigating the world, the social world Aspie style. Lesson number 59. Don't be fooled by facial expressions or lack thereof. Aspies lack the natural ability to display emotion. This absence is often reflected in our face, making it appear lackluster. This does not mean feelings are not percolating inside, but our emotional response is often delayed. And while it can be taught, we struggle to understand how to express ourselves, both verbally and non-verbally. And nonverbal and verbal communication is actually part of the curriculum that I created. And um, right now that the curriculum is actually being taught um, uh, virtually through Zoom. So it's actually available to anybody, not, not just individuals in Michigan. Um, so from, from, the next, from the next chapter, sensory integration, difficulties over and under. Lesson number 61, Aspies experience hyper and hyposenses. Sensory sensitivities are common among people with Asperger syndrome. We may experience any one of our seven senses intensely or virtually not at all, often resulting in anxiety and physical pain. Also challenging, is their unpredictability from week to week, sometimes even day to day, further, compl further complicating treatment and coping mechanisms. In strategies for coping with sensory challenges, I picked out lesson 69. Identification is really the first step. Understanding and acknowledging problems faced is vital to helping ourselves and those we love. As a child, I was not able to communicate my sensory difficulties. With experience, I, I began to recognize my triggers and learn to work around them. Aspie supporters should be aware that we do not act without reason. 
Learning the rationale behind behaviors is very important. And in the chapter, Change is Hard But Worth Embracing. Lesson number 85, I've always done it this way. It is a harsh, cold reality when we are forced to abandon our norm and take on a new perspective. On the flip side, once entrenched in a new routine, sometimes I realize I was harboring false realities and that my former beloved familiar routine was in actuality no longer, no longer entirely pleasant, relevant, or beneficial to me. And the final chapter, Tips Based on My Personal Experience. Lesson number 91, my favorite motto, less is more. Despite the fast-paced demanding world in which we live, where bigger is deemed better by many, I find it helpful to focus on quality over quantity. Slow to process, easy to overwhelm, I am most successful when I focus on whom and what I believe important rather than trying to keep up with the norm. I think I got everything. <laughs> yeah, those are all uh, very, very good. Um, you know, it's the word pithy. Uh, 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 six word uh, lessons and uh, they're all extremely valuable to anyone who uh, reads uh, your book and they sound uh, you know excellently uh, said and read and I just uh, I have nothing but compliments thank you very much um, and I, I, I do include resources at, at the end of the book, because I know it's, you know, while I wanted to create something, you know, concise and not an encyclopedia, um, I also know that sometimes people might neither want more. So I try to include some resources um, for those looking to, you know, learn or, you know, want more. Well, I'm sure our listeners are feeling like us right now, and they they would love to hear some more. So re really appreciate you um, sharing those, uh, some of your favorites, even though, like we said, I'm sure, uh, you know, all the messages in the book are valuable and probably can appeal to people going through different uh, stages of their discovery. Thank you, Nate. So I'll hand it off here to uh, Merrick for some additional questions. Okay. So um, a little bit like uh, my co-host Nate's, but uh, somewhat different. Um, so my first question is you are an avid runner. Why did you take up running and what relation does it have to your autism? Yeah. So again, there's, there's a story with that. Um, I, I've, I've always been, um, I've always loved the outdoors. I've always loved being active. And um, my father is a big sports fan. And, you know, he, from the time I was, you know, very, very little, I can remember going with him to a basketball court and, um, you know, 
just trying to, you know, get the, get the ball up to the, the net shooting baskets. Um, I played basketball and softball. Um, but running was never anything that, that running was something that you did as part of another sport or, um, or quote unquote, you know, punishment or to be, um, you know, to, to train for another sport. And um, when I was um, put in an institution, um, which was probably the, the most devastating experience of my life, um, I got one thing good out of it. Um, there, there was um, act one, one staff person who, who was kind. There weren't very many of them. And she recognized, um, she didn't understand me but she recognized how um, I just needed needed to genuinely move and how much I liked the outdoors. And she was a runner. And one day she said to me, um, Tracy, do you want to go for a run with me? And I, I honestly didn't know what that meant. I just knew that, you know, I'd be getting outside and away from all the noise. And um, so you know, she led the way and we started running. And I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. She, you know, she seemed so far ahead of me. And um, it seemed like, you know, you know, it was going to, we were going forever and my lungs burned. And, um, but at the same time, it was absolutely amazing. It was wonderful. Um, I, I loved the movement. I loved the peace. I loved the quiet. Um, I loved, I loved the feeling it, it gave me inside. And, um, so that, that was my, my very first introduction to, to, to running. And, um, it was something that I, you know, I wanted to do again and again. And, um, while I was in the institution, I didn't have many opportunities to quote unquote, go for a run. Um, but, uh, Afterwards, I, I obviously found opportunities to pursue it and um, have, have never left the sport um, and only found more and more things about it that, that I love. And in terms of what relation it has to autism, um, the, the real relation is, you know, autism is a part of me. Um, it's something I, you know, I was born with and it's you know, it's, it's something that offers, I guess, um, a lot of challenges, um, but also some things that, um, that are great. I'm, I'm proud of my, my honesty. Um, I'm proud of my ability to, to focus and, and concentrate. Um, and as much as autism is a part of me, so, so is running. Um, I also call it my, my better half. It's like when I found it, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's completing, it's very, it's fulfilling. It, it kind of, you know, com completes me. It's, it, it, it does, it does a lot for me. It's, it's my, it's my happy place. It gives me strength. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, I, I could I could go on and on when I talk about running, but um, 
And I, I guess the other thing with running, I mean, there, there's, there's different types, um, you know, sprinting as well as endurance. And with my ability to focus, um, I, I love all kinds of running, but um, I think that helps with, with my endurance. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I certainly what I'm getting from all of this is uh, your immense passion for it, which is, uh, you know, thrilling and exciting and will definitely thrill and excite anyone who is listening to this. So to further explore the topic, um, two questions in one. What would you say are the biggest benefits of running and what inspiration and tactical advice do you have for other individuals with Asperger's syndrome who are interested in starting a running regimen? Okay, yeah. So there, there are loads and loads of, of benefits to, to running and, you know, they're, they're very individual. For me, um, the, the piece it offers, um, the, the quiet, I, I don't use headphones. Um, there are a lot of people who do. Um, it, it offers me, you know, time alone. It offers me time to think. Like I said, I, I love, I love the raw mechanics of it. I, I love the, the movement of it. And there are many, many, many different types of running. You know, people, people think of running, um, in general as just a very boring, you know, sport, they think of, you know, just running on the roads from point A to point B and it'd be boring and that, and that it's boring, but there are so many different types of running, you know, different paces and different surfaces. Um, trail running has actually become, become my favorite. Um, and, uh, um, the, you know, it, it's not why I run, but there are a lot of social benefits as well. Um, I've met some truly amazing, wonderful people, um, made a, num a, a number of friends through my running, um, had a lot of opportunities. I mean, I've, I've ended up working in the sport of running just because um, I, I am a runner and familiar with, with running and love running. I've taught running classes. I've um, worked in the run specialty field, um, uh, and uh, um, I, I've also um, I, I have a passion for traveling as well. And um, with the different races, I I enjoy. Um, you know, it's I one of my favorite things to do is you know work. Um, work adventure and travel, work running into my adventure and travel. And so, you know, I find um, I'm always up for, you know, a race anywhere, anytime. Um, I, I recently had an opportunity to connect with a nonprofit out in Washington and they invited me out and um, to, for an author opportunity. And so I was able to take that opportunity and run an amazing trail race in Idaho where I'd never been and um, and then um, do my author event and meet these wonderful people in, in Washington. Um, so, you know, 
some, all, you know, different parts of that might appeal to, to different people, but, you know, running is, is, is what you make of it. And there are just a lot of, a lot of benefits and a lot of opportunities um, within it. And I hope I've given some, <laughs> some inspiration, um, but, but further, um, you know, like, like with anything, um, you know, I guess I would, you know, kind of back to my, my motto, less is more. Um, I, I love endurance is probably my favorite thing. I, the longer, the better I've, um, I've run hundred mile races and I, I truly, I truly enjoy those, but, you know, longer is not, is not necessarily better. It's, it's a very individual sport. Um, whether you, you know, start your running program with a little bit of jogging or you start walking. Um, there's no written rule for, you know, how far you have or need to go. When I started running, I, I didn't even know that people ran a hundred miles. Um, I, I never would have thought about it. When I first learned about it, um, I had absolutely no desire to do it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like with, you know, with anything you go from, you know, people go from, you know, being an infant to, you know, not being able to, to, you know, propel themselves to not only crawling and standing, but, you know, then they're, you know, many of us are privileged to be able to, to walk and run and, and move. And it's baby steps, it's training, it's, it's growing. And, People should know that, you know, I've had so many people, um, including when I've taught running classes or been fitting people for, for shoes or just, you know, met different people. Oh, I wish I could run. Well, you can. I wouldn't suggest trying to run, you know, a half, you know, 13 miles or even five miles at once, but you start small and you build on it. And it's okay when you have a, a bad day, you, you know, you take a break and um, you only have to build as, as quickly or as much as you feel comfortable. And it's, it's not healthy to try to build all, all at once. Um, baby steps. Um, and most important, um, running does not have to be an expensive sport, but the main piece of equipment that you really do need are, are shoes good quality running shoes. And a lot of people make the mistake of trying to start their running or walking program with um, just an old pair of, of shoes that they might have lying around that they use to walk around in. And a lot of people don't understand that people have different types of, of feet and different gates. And if you're trying to um, especially do something, start something new that requires impact um, and you don't have the proper support under, you know, your feet, which supports your whole body, it's going to hurt <laughs> and it's not going to be, a, you know, a pleasurable experience. And so what people really need to do is they need to understand what type of arch they have and whether or not they, they pronate or not. They need to get fitted by, by professionals and, you know, be willing to spend what it takes to have, um, 
you know, a, a quality, a quality run, running shoe and just put the investment first into that shoe and um, have the support, you know, both on their gait as well as, you know, the, the proper cushioning um, to, to support the movement and, and go from there. Um, you know, there are all kinds of different different types of equipment you can have and different types of clothes, but it's, it's the shoes that, that you really need. So, um, again, I could, I could go on, but that, that would be, um, that would be my best advice. <laughs> that is fantastic advice. And if I, if I can just highlight one thing you said before that I really appreciated, and I think people who are listening can take home as, some inspiration to maybe get involved with running or, you know, something that brings you a similar kind of joy. Um, and it was just when you mentioned some of the, the physiological sensation about it, like feeling a tremendous calm and, and like, um, you know, running, I've, I've done some running also, not, obviously not nearly to the level of Tracy, but, um, it does kind of put you in a, in a way, an altered, um, state of, of awareness or consciousness. And, um, you know, it's, there's, that's a big reason I think why there's such a, you know, a passionate community surrounding running is that, you know, everyone is joining together in this, you know, really just peaceful and, and great experience that they've been able to, to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was something I, I did want to say as well. It's a, it's a very, very supportive community and there are lots of different opportunities, um, both, you know, um, free and paid races. Um, there, there are just loads and loads of resources that I could go on about. And, and I, I, I won't take the time now, but I, I did try to highlight, um, you know, to a much, a much more detailed extent, um, some of the things that I'm speaking of um, in my in my book, um, Six Word Lessons on the Sport of Running. Um, but also, like you know, and one thing I I did want to mention, as much as I love to run and I'm passionate about it, I I know that it's not going to be for everybody, and whether somebody decides they want to take up running or another form of, you know, physical fitness, you know, find, find something because it's, it's so, it's so beneficial, both, you know, both physically, both health-wise and both, um, you know, emotionally. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there, I, I happen to, just love being active, but, um, you know, running's my first, but yoga and boxing and some of the, um, running can be, um, individual and team. Um, but, um, and I, I personally love kind of the solo aspect of it. Um, but there are a lot of wonderful team sports out there as well. Um, tennis is a wonderful sport. Again, that's something that can be done you know, individually, as well as being part of a team. So there are so many wonderful opportunities out there. Um, don't be afraid to, um, to try different things, um, but also be willing to give each a chance. Um, I, I truly believe that, you know, it's, 
um, anything worth doing is not always going to be easy. Um, but if you if you stick with it, there are there are much there are, there are many many wonderful benefits. Um, so yeah, so thank you. Well, thank you for uh, answering our questions about uh, your passion of running. Um, so I'd like to ask you the last question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your third book, My Life on the Autism Spectrum? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I, I never could have imagined that I would have considered writing a book about myself, but it was, you know, after um, writing and publishing um, my, my first book and um, I you know, I always try to be a resource, um, you know, giving, um, speaking um, for different organizations, um, a, a, you know, being exposed to sell my books as well as, you know, answer any questions of, you know, people who want to stop by, um, whether they, they, you know, purchase my book or not. But in that time, I had you know, many people saying, well, I, you know, I wish you'd write more about yourself, about your own experiences. And um, I never would have thought myself worthy of something like that. But again, with getting that type of feedback often enough, I started considering it and um, finally kind of found the, the right angle. And um, so, yeah, I, um, my, uh, a big credit to, to my, my publishers, Baselli Publishing, they're, they're always coming up with, um, with, you know, something, something new and something helpful. And, um, it, it was their kind of their, their new, their new series of, of books, um, you know, share, share your story. Um, and again, it's, I, I wrote it concise, but I get more in depth about different parts of my life. Um, you know, my my education and um, uh, relationships. You know, my my early years, my time in the institution. I offer resources. Um, there, there. I talk about challenges. Um, I talk. I talk some more about my my running. But what I do is I. I share things that I'm not proud of <laughs> and, you know, m mistakes that I've made. Um, I, sh sh I share things um, about time in the institution that, um, you know, I, I never even shared with, with my, my family and, you know, things that I just don't, don't talk about. And it's not that I'm, it's easy to share my skeletons or things I'm not proud of, but I, I decided to write my book for the very purpose of helping people and helping people understand that you're not alone. And just because you make a mistake or have something you're not proud of, um, it doesn't have to define you. You can, you know, you can learn from your mistakes. You can learn from, I, what I've learned and, you know, it's easy to offer advice and apply it to yourself. I'm, always a work in progress, but um, 
you know, mistakes don't equal failure and not succeeding in something or not succeeding as fully as you might have originally pictured or wanted doesn't equal failure. It's, um, it's the willingness to, it's the willingness to try. And, you know, our, our mistakes not achieving perhaps what we set out to achieve, um, those are learning opportunities. And sometimes along the way, we actually, you know, find a, a different and better path. And um, so, again, I, I'm very grateful um, to those before me, um, in particular, Leanne Holiday Wiley. It was um, it, her book is um, Pretending to be Normal is one of the resources that I read after learning about um about autism, because I, I never even knew it existed until I was 30. Um, reading that book, um, I, you know, it answered so much about me and I could relate so much. It gave me the courage to, to learn more and to eventually pursue a, a diagnosis, which um, uh, getting officially diagnosed isn't necessarily the, the right path for everybody, um, but it was for me and it's provided um, a lot of insight and a lot of, um, a lot of help um, in how I, how I go about things and just continuing to, to grow. And whether or not somebody um, suspects themselves of being on the spectrum, um, whether or not they, they get a diagnosis. Um, the one thing I, I believe that is important is knowledge is power. Just, just keep learning um, and just keep, just be willing to keep taking risks. So. It is within your wisdom that will help um, you be, that, that helps you be a role model for so many other people, especially, uh, females who are diagnosed or undiagnosed with autism and they and they feel like that that there's like someone who they could look to as an example of someone who they can basically see and go okay here's this individual and either they'll go okay here's this individual and I really really look up to her she's accomplishing so much or they'll look to you and go, hmm, I wonder if I'm any way at all like her. And, you know, that's 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 being an inspiration to others. Thank you. Thank you. I, I try. And, um, you know, uh, I I'm always I'm always looking to to help people in whatever way I can, which is why um, I'm. You know, I, I put my contact information in my book and it's on my book page. And um, I'm I'm always willing to try to be a, a resource and helpful in whatever way I can. Tracy, thank you. That was an exceptional interview. Thank you. Thank you very much to you both um, for having me, for giving me the opportunity for everything you do um, for the autism community. Oh, thank you. Right. So for our staff interview for today, we're going to be interviewing 
Dr. Aaron Brooker Lozat, who is the Ells for Autism Foundation's program director. As a program director, Aaron oversees all therapeutic services development and delivery from birth through adulthood. All Ells for Autism therapeutic services are rooted in evidence-based practices and are available to individuals with and without ASD across ages. In addition to overseeing all therapeutic services, Aaron was responsible for ensuring the mission of the foundation and the interaction with the global autism community is maintained through global partnerships, professional observerships, research opportunities, consulting and training opportunities. Um, Also, Aaron oversees the Global Outreach Autism Learning Services Goals Program. Basically, uh, every single thing I could say, I could basically go through and it would basically be as long as War and Peace for all the accomplishments that Dr. Lozat has done with us uh, and the 500 word position that she has with us too. Besides goals, she uh, supports the Teaching Educational Autism Methods Program. It's just, there's a lot going on with this individual. So, and we have seven questions. I don't even know if that's enough to really get even to the tip of the iceberg with this person. So I will just uh, send over to Dr. Shinnok the, the questions that, that he will feel free to, to ask you, Dr. Lazat. And, and if uh, Dr. Shinnok has anything to add, then that's, that, that's his doing. Thank you, Merrick. That was the best introduction ever. I appreciate it. Well, I'm very, very excited to welcome Dr. Lazat here. And one accomplishment that was not mentioned uh, is that she is my supervisor uh, for the work that I do at the foundation. And I'm very grateful to her for being such a, a great mentor and an inspiration. And now I'll put her on the hot seat. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Nate, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> so could you start off by explaining to our listening audience your journey to working in the clinical sciences, especially as it relates to the field of autism? Absolutely. I think that that's one of my favorite stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Um going back as my uh, daughter will tell you into earlier generations, than, than now since, you know, she thinks I'm old. So that's great. This little humor added into this. Um, when I first started out in the field, I was uh, a bachelor level speech language pathologist working in an elementary school. And I was responsible for a lot of children, um, ages really kindergarten through fifth grade. And there was a little boy in kindergarten that was constantly you know, having these challenging behaviors and essentially what, what people at that time said were he was getting into trouble all the time. And when I went in to observe him, he was very verbal. He had lots of skills. And I just knew that something was unique, was different about him and that he wasn't having bad behavior, that he wasn't having challenging, you know, behavior, that he was trying to communicate things that people weren't understanding. His style of communication, if you will, was just different. And so I worked with this school psychologist for 
hours upon hours trying to figure out what may be going on with this little boy and how we could help him and come to find out he was a child that was later diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, um, which in the DSM-4 was a, a diagno diagnosis under the umbrella of pervasive developmental disorders and, and um, really falls under this autism spectrum disorder uh, criteria. So when we figured out that this young man had autism or Asperger's syndrome at the time, we were able to learn about strategies and interventions and create a plan for him that really um, allowed him to succeed through his elementary school and in later years in life. And that experience just inspired me and it made me feel so excited about um, learning more about the brain and how people with autism think and learn and just navigate and see the world, right? The lens in which they see the world. and um, so when I was in, going to my graduate through my graduate degree, um, I had this wonderful mentor who has now passed, uh, Dr. Robin Parker, and she had this beautiful client, a female that she was seeing. And, and in my clinical practices through my my master's degree, I got to work with this young woman who, wow, she gave me a run for my money. And um, the day that we laughed together versus that she was laughing at me was the day that I knew that I would always work in the field with a field of autism and respect people with autism more than I probably respect anybody else in the world or any other group of people. And so I started to ask for opportunities to stay in the field of autism um, from my externships to my clinical fellowship years as a speech language pathologist and so on. And so I guess that's my story. I uh, always wanted to be in the field of, you know, a medical field, a rehabilitation field. I always wanted to support people's language and learning and, and communication. And then I, I met a person with autism and I just knew that that was the place that I needed to stay. Well, it's great to hear about your origin story. <laughs> Definitely um, interesting how you you got very, very involved in this field and remain that way to this day. Mm -hmm. So you just became a BCBA or a board <laughs> certified behavioral analyst. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. What are some of your current goals uh, since you've received this certification? Wow. So, um, yeah, so I've always believed in uh, applied behavior analysis and I, I feel that the, you know, principles that stem from applied behavior analysis are really those principles that help support, su really supported my success in, in working as a speech language pathologist with, with individuals with autism for, you know, past 26 or so years I've been doing this. And, um, I've, I really felt strongly that I wanted to, I guess, validate my skill sets and knowledge with this certification. Um, my goals and are, are now what they've been um, for a really long time is to marry the fields of speech language pathology and applied behavior analysis. I feel that there is this cohesion that really can occur and works well together that is uh, not well studied and uh, really very misunderstood by most uh, professionals and parents and really people in the field of autism. And so um, my hope is that 
because I'm now, you know, certified, um, I'm a licensed and certified speech language pathologist, and I'm a board certified behavior analyst, and I have this doctorate in special education that I can bring to the table, you know, protocols and, and treatment plans and procedures, teaching strategies, and I can teach others how to integrate these disciplines to a way where it really supports a person with autism in, in, in their life and their learning and their development. So that, that's my goal is to show people that these disciplines work almost better together than apart um, to the benefit of people with autism and really just people in general, because I think that they're the principles that come from both fields are just really good daily practices in life. Yeah, and pretty amazing when you think about it, it this way. We frequently talk about the value of a, of a multidisciplinary team, mm-hmm. uh, therapeutic practice. And Aaron is, or I'm sorry, Dr. Lozot now can bring a lot of these different backgrounds and skill sets to the table as one person, which is yeah. pretty amazing, I think. I think that they call um, I call they call us now unicorns, right? We're mythical because <laughs> no one ever really thought that these fields, you know, could be blended for so many years. And now, thankfully, we've evolved to where we we realize it's it's a necessary um, thing to do, and and people are working to be dual cert, duly certified, um, or even have you know three different backgrounds blended together. And I think that at Els for Autism. That's why what we do is so unique and, and so excellent is because we have not only a multidisciplinary, but we have a transdisciplinary team and we have multiple professionals with that kind of that have not kind of, but have blended backgrounds that really just make for a very well-rounded um, team of, of people supporting individuals with autism. Yeah. And ultimately it's the individuals that benefit the most from this approach. Yes, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit here, in 2021, your daughter was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Could you talk a little bit about the experience leading up to the diagnosis and how this has impacted uh, your family since then? Sure. Wow. So my daughter is, she describes herself, I guess I could say, um, she says that she is the most beautiful, talented, unique, colorful, butterfly, mythical creature, and that everybody is interested and everybody thinks that she's incredible, but she's so misunderstood that sometimes People just don't know what to do or, or how to kind of, you know, be with her. Um, and so for many years, my daughter, um, I guess, struggled, had challenges socially, um, had challenges with what we, people coined as anxiety, um, had obsessive compulsive behaviors, really needed to control things, needed sameness. Um, and but was also on the, on the other side of the coin, socially sophisticated and empathetic and, you know, just caring and loyal to a fault to her friends that she had <clears throat> and hyperverbal, really um, intellectually very, very able. And so 
me being in the field of autism, I always felt like something was different. She has had motor coordination um, and, you know, difficulties and sensory needs and, you know, everything all wrapped up into this package, this beautiful child. Mm. So for years, I asked for her to be evaluated. I went to friends, colleagues, you know, trusted professional experts in the field and said, what do you think? And everybody said, oh, you just only see autism. You've been in the field so long. This is all you do. She's perfectly fine. Just be her mom. And that was that was okay. That, that path worked until she was about eight and a half and uh, early puberty set in and lots of things changed in her life. And the things that could be passed by as, oh, you know, she's shy or she's just specific or she's an only child or she is um, just spoiled or difficult or whatever it may be, um, came into she's so depressed, she's so anxious, she's socially isolated, she can't, if she establishes a friend, she can't maintain a friendship and she became the saddest child in the whole wide world. Um, and academically went from, you know, flourishing to, to, to failing. Um, so uh, we evaluated her um, and took her to many different places across the United States and different people had different opinions. We've tried everything from mental health counseling to, um, you know, tutoring to sports and rec, um, you name it, medicines. And it, everybody said, something different or would add on a new diagnosis. So we started with uh, anxiety. Then we had depression was the next diagnosis. Then we had obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, then finally, we got a very comprehensive um, neuropsychological evaluation by very sound professionals. And they said, Aaron, and, you know, to my, you know, to my, my husband, um, the, the collection of these symptoms directly, you know, aligned with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder level one. And Ava also has comorbid mental health issues, her anxiety and depression. Um, I don't know which, which on any day are the primary, but most of the time her mental health needs um, and well-being are the primary concern in the social communication needs, the perspective taking, the literal thinking, those become her secondary to her depression and, and anxiety. Um, and so she doesn't have autism alone. She has a package of, of uh, symptoms um, and diagnoses that interact together that make life sometimes very, very, very difficult and also make her the most wonderful, unique, colorful, butterfly, mythical creature that if you get to know her, you will love her. Um, and sometimes it's difficult to get to know her. And so um, leading up to the diagnosis, uh, Nate was struggles and heartaches and behavioral challenges and calls to the non-emergency line to the police department and psychiatrists and psychologists and mental health therapists and evaluations and tears and sleepless nights of hoping that my um, daughter was going to want to stay alive every day because of suicidal ideations from her knowing how different she was and not understanding why. So the diagnosis in 2021 um, was the worst and best day of our lives. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for 
going through the timeline. Um, I'm sure uh, even now, you know, thinking back on some of the, the process leading up to it is difficult. Um, mental health issues, obviously we talk a lot about them on the show and, you know, it's especially, especially difficult, especially, um, for, um, for developing children and, um, just, you know, speaks a lot to your diligence, um, to, you know, continue to, to work and work and help her and, you know, ultimately to, to get to the point where she has the, the proper diagnosis and, um, you know, she is a very beautiful person. (laughs) She is. Thank you. Yeah. She, um, she also has a diagnosis now of ADHD, um, inattentive type and, um, and her core needs are really executive functioning skills. Um, and so in her, obviously her, her perspective taking, however, I'll tell you what she said. And I think that she's so brilliant is that, um, she said when the psychologist told her that, you know, she is a young woman with with autism spectrum disorder level one, that she would have been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome if she was, uh, you know, diagnosed in the DSM-4. Um, right. She said to her, she, my daughter said, well, explain that to me. I mean, my mom's been an autism expert for years. So either she just didn't want to tell me she was lying to me or she's really not an expert. <laughs> and... Um, and we went, we went through all of that. That was a fun conversation. But then Ava, when she under, started to really understand, and she said to the psychologist, hmm, that totally makes sense. Well, I guess I much rather have autism than have all the other things people thought I had that um, made me really possibly not live as long as a prosperous life and not be as bright and, and, and you know, uh, I guess prosperous as a person with autism I know is. So that's good. And she goes, oh, and I knew I had ADHD. You didn't have to tell me that. <laughs> um, she goes, and, and she says, my dad does too. And so um, what, what the diagnosis did for her is help her to understand herself um, so that she didn't have to feel like she always said, uh, am I going to kill myself? Am I crazy? Am I going to die? Am I going to commit suicide? Why do I always feel so sad? And now is the first time that her her therapy's working. Um, now is the first time that the psychiatry visits and the medicine with the therapy is making a difference. Now is the first time she's working to learn in school, self-advocating for the accommodations that she needs, trying to teach other people on how to understand her because she knows who she is. Um, And so she still struggles on certain days because she doesn't want to be a girl with anything, but she just, she wants to just be a girl. Right. Um, And, and she also is growing into her ability to embrace all of her diagnoses and see what they can do for her versus against her. That's, that's such a good point. And um, you know, there's a big shift in, the field of psychology towards you know, more of a positive psychology approach and with the greater understanding of uh, the understanding and destigmatization of conditions also comes this recognition that, you know, it could be related, the conditions could be related to some really amazing personality traits as well. So just trying to shift the, 
the perspective a little bit from all the negatives to the positives. Yeah, today is a, a significant day um, because today I've we worked to try to get even an individual education plan in the school system for many years since she was actually in the first grade. And today was a day that she uh, had her her IEP meeting for the first time ever, her first IEP, and uh, she was invited and she came and she got to advocate for what she thought was correct in the IEP or not correct. And I think it's really wonderful that now they've changed the age to 12 versus 14 to have uh, individuals invited to their IEP meetings and learn how to self-advocate and understand the process. And I'm hoping that that really helps her, um, I guess, have ownership to the strategies and the supports and her learning goals and and really ultimately helps promote success long-term in our education. That is terrific. Yeah, I was not aware that of the shift in the age range, but that's a welcome change. Wow. Yeah, I, I just found out legislation changed in July. Um, so if you're 12 and in the seventh grade, then you must be invited to your um, IEP meetings versus 14 for transition to adulthood. Okay, well, thank you so much. No problem. I'll pass it on to Merrick for his questions. Okay, so um, I'll have to say um, the the third question that Nate asked, um, every question that I could ask really pales a little bit in comparison to that because I just uh, loved hearing that story. But in other ways, though, the questions that I have are extremely valuable and important, too. Um, So I understand that you have a significant interest in research related to autism in females. Why is this such an important area of research? It's such an important area of research for many reasons, Merrick, and I appreciate you asking me that question. It's such an important uh, area of research Number one, because females with autism often present very differently than males with autism. And most of the research in the field of autism has focused on males because the ratios of males have always, you know, in the literature been much greater um, than in females. Um, What we've learned in recent research and the literature is that the ratios are not so far apart. So where right now we, we have that it's, you know, four boys to every one girl Um, there's studies that are coming out to show that it's probably closer to three or even two to one as the ratios, but girls are often much more difficult to diagnose. Um, Case in point, the repetitive behaviors and restricted interest um, and attention that let's say someone like my daughter had as a child, she had a hundred Barbie dolls that you were not allowed to touch. And she liked to take the clothes off and then redo the outfits and redesign the outfits and put the outfits back on and then have creative stories that she would tell and and create with her Barbie dolls. And people would say, oh, she's so talented. She's going to be a designer. She is so creative. She has such wonderful play skills, but no one was allowed to play with her dolls and you couldn't interrupt her story. But no one thought of that as part of autism, 
right? They thought of that as girls love Barbies, girls love pink, girls love to be creative and imaginative. And this is really great, robust, imaginative, symbolic play skills, right? But play usually allows for others to be collaborative in it. So if you don't know to look for those patterns of behavior and the assessments that we have to diagnose autism have been normed on boys for the most part, then you're not going to pick that up as a red flag. Girls often have um, um, very nice eye contact. They they aim to please. They're, they they appear, they give the illusion to be social and they are really sophisticated. Not all females, obviously, I don't mean to overgeneralize in any way, shape or form or stereotype this, but um, the research even shows that many females mask um, their diagnosis and they can pick up on what other, observe what other females are doing that they have interest in and they can really copy, mirror those behaviors so well that you don't see the underlying weakness. So their, their masking abilities really is a, is a great strength that masks their underlying weakness. So then it, it doesn't get picked up unless you have a very fine-tuned lens. So research is limited to understand how to identify females with autism. And, and also then once identified to truly understand the profiles of different females with autism, so that if there's even any need for different intervention um, in females with autism. Females with autism have higher suicide rates than almost any other population. So we have to research the fields of females to understand why and what can we do about this to decrease the likelihood of this happening? Are there different paths that we should be thinking about, such as the comorbid mental health uh, you know, issues that, that really ex are exacerbated during the adolescent and puberty-based years? Um, so there's so many reasons, but those are just a few of the foundational reasons that we really need to, um, make sure people, people understand. And with the research, we, we're going to build understanding. We're going to build different interventions. Uh, education alone is significant to, to support females with autism so that our, our girls, if you will, our females, um, biological females, because some of our females don't identify as a girl um, from, you know, how they feel their gender is. We need to make sure that educators are well informed on the differences that that gender, the differences gender makes in, in how autism presents itself. And so I feel like research has to be there to substantiate, to support um, what we're seeing anecdotally and, and what our females are going through when they're, when they're developing through life. That is uh, definitely very interesting. Um, you know, and women are definitely, uh, females are definitely one of the more underrepresented uh, groups within, uh, if within the wide scope of the autism community. So I think that, um, that that is uh it's it's like uh one uh story that nate did that i commented on with him um it was one of those research stories and the research um was only done to uh, a male group 
there was there were never any uh involvements of females um in the group at all and uh, well, that was one of the first things that i noticed was from that uh research article and that was one of the first things that i mentioned was you know this this uh story of research is really really good and really really interesting but there's no representation of females at all in the story so you know absolutely Eric. i mean you know think about it i filled out so many checklists I filled out so many, I've been interviewed so many times with standardized assessments um, in, in, that are considered gold standard in the field of autism. And my daughter has um, passed them, if you will, with, with flying colors. She was unable to be made eligible under the program you know, label of exceptional, in exceptional student education, the school system of autism spectrum disorder, because she didn't show any signs of autism, even though she has a medical diagnosis. And, and it's, they're just, these measures aren't necessarily sensitive enough to pick up on um, the subtle signs of autism or the differences, the discrepancies, the deviations, if you will, in autism that are often seen in females, especially females that um, have high, you know, verbal abilities, high intellectual abilities. And so then, if they're if you don't get a diagnosis of autism right and you see the my daughter it was young at just really a week or two before her 12th birthday to get diagnosed um you see average ages of females getting diagnosed teen years to their 30s so how would you ever enroll in an autism study <laughs> if you don't know you have autism i mean really this is what i Females, I, I find, I don't know if it's the best way to say it or not, for, but for no other better choice of words, my daughter had essentially alphabet soup next to her name in diagnoses uh, before collectively someone said the collection of these symptoms meet the criteria for autism comorbid with mental health issues, right? Mm -hmm. So it went from alphabet soup to split pea soup. Exactly. I'm just trying to compete with her, Merrick, these days with all the letters next to my name so she doesn't feel left out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like what one per what our other guest said, uh, Tracy Cohn, um, who was diagnosed with uh, Asperger's, I believe, or yeah, at the age of 39. And she uh, mentioned how there are examples of people uh, of what I would call the drumbeat of denial, you mm -hmm. know, oh, you don't possibly have autism. Oh, you, you, why, why do you even think you do? Oh, the person who diagnosed you, that's completely wrong. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I've oh, heard yeah. I've stories. Had, I've heard stories from other women who, you know, I'm friends with, or I know as acquaintances who have ASD, and you know or i've read stories and much of it is the same thing well you don't have autism do you it's that kind of thing absolutely so yeah so this is these are all the reasons why it's extremely it's critical really for the field that we have research uh, more research about females and autism okay so <clears throat> My second question is, in what ways have you supported the community of females 
with an autism diagnosis? So that's a great question. And um, I have joined forces with these other really incredible uh, minds, these professional women um, in the field of autism who happen to have a family member, a direct, you know, impact of autism um, that is a female. And we have come together and started a females in autism campaign. Um, so it's this, this campaign is a collaboration of a Florida Atlantic University Center of Autism and Related Disabilities, FAU CARD, University of South Florida um, Center for Autism and Related Disabilities, so USF CARD, uh, and the Gulf Coast University um, on the West Coast of Florida as well. They have a community autism network, CAN is the organization. And so we have, uh, and then we have a one or two community providers in the mental health field that have come on board and us as a group of female professionals with family members that are female with autism have created this campaign to uh, disseminate the research and evidence-based practices and information to the school personnel and mental health community about females with autism through monthly a monthly webinar series that began in October of 2021 and will come to a, um, I guess, not a close because I don't know that our campaign will close, but to a I guess uh, an end point for this phase of the campaign as of uh, April, what we are now calling obviously World Autism Month. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm sorry for the noise. Um, I'm very excited about this campaign. We have um, their pre recorded talks that are about an hour long. And in the first talk that uh, I did with a colleague of mine, um, Noel Balsamo, Dr. Noel Balsamo, we had, I think, 76 views in the first month just on, you know, recognizing the ratios of females with autism was our initial talk. There's been talks about with our colleagues about, um, you know, sexuality, dating, adolescence, teenage years and autism for both parents and females with autism to attend and to, to have as an audience. And um, FAU CARD has a mental health task force that Merrick, I know you're very active on and we will also be presenting at the mental health conference that uh, FAU card hosts. So that's what I've done thus far is to um, support this campaign and um, ways in which we can dis disseminate information and research that's to really, you know, we're, we're, we're moved past, obviously, we're hoping awareness and we're into um, acceptance and embracing autism in the world. So now what we're trying to do is make sure that there's awareness so that you can accept and embrace females with autism since it, it tends to be so different. Yeah. Um, one of actually one of the presentations that the FAU card mental health task force did, I believe it was two months ago. And one of our board members, Katie Santoro actually sat in because the topic was about, females with autism and their mental health. And so I, I find that to be very interesting. Um, it was uh, probably one of the best um, meetings of the task force that I've been a part of. Um, but I, I think it, it really, really uh, 
um, explains so much. And I think that that is, um, it's, it's just, you know, um, coming from a, a man, I guess it just, it's, it's so, how can I say this? It's so enlightening in some aspects to have been and to have seen and to have uh, been there for the presentation of it. So um, yeah, and that presentation, Merrick, was done by two of the professionals on our committee that are supporting this campaign. So I'm glad to hear that. That's excellent feedback. Yeah, it, w- it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, Katie also was really, really into it, too. You know, it was yeah. just it was extremely valuable. And I really do thank uh, those members of the committee for presenting that to us. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been, um, it's been therapeutic for me to this, this committee has, and this campaign, well, the committee specifically has provided me with this um, unexpected support group of, you know, professional women that are professionals and or parents or siblings. Um, and it was unexpected and it wasn't the purpose for me getting involved, obviously, um, to have a support group, but it's definitely a, a safe space for me. So I'm grateful for each and every one of them. Okay. So um, my third question is, well, it's a two-parter, but um, what have been significant findings in your research that you could share? If not, what trends interest you the most? So I haven't directly done research on females with autism. Um, I have read the research. Um, and I think the, the trends, I guess so I can speak to the trends that interest me the most. Um, I, I really am interested in, in learning more about the, what the true ratios are. And my interest would be in um, looking at how to I guess, modify the current gold standard assessments for diagnosis to to have those assessments be more sensitive and aligned with uh, the profiles of females with autism. Um, I the other the other area of interest for me really is studying the comorbid mental health issues uh, that go along with you know young women and even adult women with autism and intervention. Uh, paths, I guess, that we can create that are evidence-based, that are, you know, truly have efficacy behind them um, to support women to not have to go through life having um, to be so confused about who they are and get so depressed that we have this high rates of suicide. I mean, really, females with autism truly are probably the, uh, the population with the highest rate of suicide. I want to. I want to find a way to, you know, alter that course or help change that trajectory that we currently see trends in. That that would be my dream because um, as a mom, that's the worst part about it for me is is worrying about the mental health of my child. As a professional, the mind and and as as Nate had mentioned earlier, you know, the ability to support and really build in a, a foundation of strength and emotional and mental health and well-being in, in young children 
and keeping that solid, that's what's going to really pave the way for our women with autism to be trailblazers later on in life and not, not have to get stuck with no support system in really formative years through adolescence and teenaging young adulthood where they don't know that they're, they're diagnosed with anything. So they can't understand themselves. So they just feel so, so sad um, and, and you know, different. I guess that that's what I want to see because those trends, they scare me. They make me feel sad. And um, so that drives my motivation to want to study and learn more to create intervention plans to help. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, You know, and uh, thank you so much for wanting to make a difference in the lives of others, which you do every day. Thank you, Merrick, and thank you, Dr. Nate. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Lozat. So we have one final question. Um, how can professionals in the clinical field improve the lives of females with autism, diagnosed or undiagnosed? Um. Merrick, could you ask that question one more time? I'm sorry. Okay. How can professionals in the clinical field improve the lives of females with autism, diagnosed or undiagnosed? Oh, gosh, Merrick. Um, I think recognizing that the females with autism have very different presentations of autism and very unique qualities um, and that very well may have comorbidities in, in the you know space of mental health that need to be integrated into any intervention plan um, is half the battle. Um, I, um, I feel like the, the learning about the differences in females with autism to males with autism is, is key to, to success, um, you know, that, that a professional is going to have when working with a, a female with autism. Um, the first provider that I found that really was able to move the needle or help in my personal case uh, was somebody that was a licensed clinical social worker, so a really strong background in mental health and a board-certified behavior analyst, a duly certified professional, can come from both lenses that has a background in, you know, education as well. Otherwise, you almost need a three-for-one. Um, you have to you either have to have three professionals in one or and, and then a doctor, a medical doctor, monitoring any medication needs, you know, that are necessary. And if, if someone feels that they could support a female with autism as one discipline, as one person by themselves. Um, I think that that, that is, a, I guess, a misunderstanding. Uh, and so my hope for professionals, how they could really impact is to collaborate with teams of professionals to always include the female when possible in the decision-making because females with autism know what they need whether they're verbal or nonverbal, they're very clear in their opinions and they communicate strong opinions in many different ways. And we have to um, ensure that 
their 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 uh, voice is heard, no matter if their voice needs to be augmented or supplemented. They have every female has a voice, just like every person does, and that families are um, are listened to. Uh, one of the most difficult parts of my journey has been convincing professionals that what I'm seeing is is correct because of the masking that females often do throughout the day in educational settings. And so if you're a professional and you listen to the family, really listen to what they're saying, look for trends in behavior, collaborate across disciplines or integrate the strategies from multiple disciplines and you you allow the female that you're working with to have a voice um, in the process, then you're going to have positive, you're going to have a positive impact on um, the person with autism's life. Yeah, I heard a consistent theme in um, what you were just describing and also something you pointed out with your, with your daughter, which was, um, you know, kind of the formation of the self-identity and how having the diagnosis can help with, with that and also alleviating some psychological distress that could go along with, you know, feeling a lack of identity or a little bit of uncertainty there. And then also um, then just to me, that would speak volumes to how important it would be to make sure that that individual is involved with the decision-making and um, you know, that they're feeling that they have some self um, autonomy in, uh, in that process. Yeah. And, and I, again, I want to just make a disclaimer um, for the purpose of the podcast that I know very well that I am talking about one profile with my personal story of, of uh, a female with autism and that there's many, many versions of profiles and, and people with autism and that it's not necessarily, my story is not comparable to somebody else's story, possibly that has a female with autism in their life that may not have verbal language that may or may have minimal verbal language or may have, um, you know, an intellectual disability, a, a, you know, cognitive deficit of some sort or learning needs at a greater level. I think that though my story hopefully will help um, and the profile I'm discussing today will help provide a perspective and, and hopefully set the foundation for, for people in the field professionals um, to look at females with autism through a more refined or fine-tuned lens. And, and that, that would be my ask. Um, you know, that's my hope that comes out of today. Um, I uh, really thank you for the messaging today. And uh, I, I do believe that there will be that the listeners who will be listening to the program will hopefully be moved by your words to uh, become a lot more involved in making sure that no female with autism ever gets left behind and that, you know, the earlier the better the diagnosis, 
the better the person's life will be. Absolutely. And, and I think that I'm, I'm better for it, you know, as a professional, I, I feel that, you know, I've, I've lived this life in the field of autism for so many years, um, working, you know, clinically, uh, you know, through only looking through a professional lens and to be able to have a lived experience now, I, I feel grateful to hopefully be able to connect with the families that I support and serve and the people that I support and serve um, at, a, at a different level, still obviously maintaining my integrity and, you know, the validity and the reliability of my, of my clinical work. So, um, yeah, it's a journey. Uh, it's definitely a journey and it's not necessarily a, a straight path anywhere. And there's lots of curves and bumps and potholes and, you know, we just keep on building strength and, and moving forward. That's really well said. Thank you for the information again. Uh, very valuable to us as the hosts and also our listeners. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Schnock, and thank you, Merrick Egber. I am grateful that you invited me. I feel very honored and uh I, I, this is a safe space for me talking to the both of you. So I appreciate it. We do appreciate it too. And now as always, it is time to go over today in the world of autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok and his fantastic research oriented stories. All righty, here comes everybody's favorite segment. So I'll start off with an article, uh, covering an article that was written by Michael Burnick for Forbes magazine. And it was titled The Autistic Savant and the Work World. And I'm going to summarize uh, some details from that article. So over the past three decades, several autistic savants have come to public notice. Joseph Sullivan, Ruth Sullivan's son, who we likely talked about during the episode where we covered Ruth's passing, the human calculator and chronicler who served as one of three autistic savants to inspire the movie Rain Man. There's also musician Leslie Lemke who can hear a musical piece once and play it back perfectly. Stephen Wood, Wiltshire, who may be the most well-known savant, can view an entire landscape just once, including large cityscapes, and then draw it with perfect detail. Many of these savants, like Lemke and Wiltshire, have been able to work and obtain subsequent income related to their rare talents. However, most autistic savants have not had success in finding a role in the work world. The article goes on to profile David Nisson, a 34-year-old autistic man that is a savant in chemistry. At age four, he had very limited language as well as the presence of repetitive and stereotypical behaviors. He struggled heavily in school, but one day his mother discovered that he had found a high school chemistry book and was beginning to read and solve problems at just four years of age. By age eight, he was testing above a 12th grade reading level. 
Throughout his middle school and high school years, he continued to demonstrate math and science skills at a college level and above. David went on to study chemistry at University of California, Davis, and earn a PhD with a dissertation title that I can hardly say, but here goes. It was titled Nuclear Magnetic Resonance Studies of Topological Insulators and Materials with a Large Spin Orbit Coupling. That sounds like a, a congressional bill. Maybe, <laughs> maybe find an acronym for that. N-M-R-S-T, and then people will just get lost still. That's uh, that's almost as bad as remembering the first 30 digits of pi. Oh, yeah, I remember the first 30 digits of pi. Um, let's see. One peach plus three cherry plus, uh, no, thir- to me, 30 digits of pi are 30 uh, pumpkin pies. Okay, Merrick's stomach. It's time to let Merrick take control of the wheel again. <laughs> Okay, uh, I, I'm I'm calling you out, stomach, and I'll be the I'll be the person in charge here. <laughs> Merrick's brain retaking control. <laughs> gonna take back control. Gonna take back control. <laughs> so, aside from so so after earning this prestigious degree with um, that exceptional dissertation. David was offered many positions around the country to continue his work on topological insulators and some other positions in software development, another area of his expertise, all within the Bay Area. And this is very close to where David grew up, if I did not already mention that from the story. Um, Unfortunately, though, all the positions required relocation, and many of the companies were looking for more quote unquote, independent autism workers that did not require AIDS to carry out their jobs. Plan C for David was to become, was to um, take on a role in software development within the Sacramento area. In 2018, a local employment agency for adults with developmental differences called Community and Employment Services. They helped David to get a job as this website developer for its parent company. And in 2019, he had a volunteer role on the website development team for UP, UPCHIEVE, a nonprofit that connects low-income high school students with free online tutors. So the point here is that David is reporting a good job satisfaction, but his family cites numerous times that he could take on a more challenging opportunity if the right situation existed. The number of patient and flexible workplaces towards individuals with autism that require AIDS are growing, but they remain few and far between still. So Merrick, what are your thoughts on this interesting piece, you know, commenting on savants in general, and also on this work, uh, the climate of the work situation? Well, I I do find it interesting. Um, 
Not too many people know that not all savants are autistic. I believe that it's like 11 to 12% of individuals with autism are savants. I think that um, one of the board members, actually the person we interviewed the last episode, may have been considered or, or maybe is considered uh, autistic savant. Um, and it's, it's much, much better than years ago when the commonplace name for those types of people was idiot savant, um, which, you know, is, is really, really offensive and degrading to people who, you know, they're, they're highly intelligent and they're highly, you know, in, and, and just because you may have a few deficits in certain areas, it does not mean that, that you lack any kind of functionality as a human individual. So I, I, uh, I, I do appreciate that uh, the term idiot savant got turned into something along the lines of autistic savant. Um, now, uh, Another thing is that um, more people may know of Kim Peek as being an inspiration uh, to um, the character of Raymond Babbitt in Rain Man. But um, there was actually in 2008, there was a, a study done that actually placed him with FG uh, syndrome and not exactly to have any form of autism. And one of the uh, examples is that uh, from a very early age, Kim Peek had microencephaly, which is something that FG syndrome uh, individuals have. And it's not something that you normally hear when you talk about autism. So, um, but still during the, um, speech that Dustin Hoffman gave when he received the Oscar for Rain Man, he mentioned that uh, Joseph Sullivan, and he also said, and his mother, well, Ruth Sullivan was, I believe, the founder of the Autism Society of America. So she wasn't just, you know, some mother, but point aside, though, um, he did thank Joseph Sullivan and Kim Peek. So I thought that yeah, um, it, it is really, really important to, to bring him up. Um, and I, I am familiar with Stephen Wiltshire. Um, I guess that it's, it's either Wiltshire or Wiltshire. Uh, someone can correct me. Um, but it's really, you know, when you have that much knowledge and intelligence, um, do you give up anything or do you, or it's sort of like when someone, the, the whole pop cultural thing of you're, you're blind. And so therefore, you know, your hearing is heightened or your deaf and your seeing is heightened and something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, for some people it's, they have incredible gifts, but, you know, they may need supports or they may need a little bit of extra help. And I think that that is definitely something 
uh, to think about in regards to David Neeson. Um, I uh, really must say it is, it is absolutely astounding that a guy who um, is really, really into the technical and the technological fields uh, has a hard time finding work because he could easily do um, some great things when it comes to, you know, how many of those jobs, how many of those companies are still traditional when it comes to you have to be at the office versus, you know, you can work on this from anywhere. You can, you know, sit at your home, you can have an aid, you can have supports and the like, but, you know, your brain power is there. And so if the aid has to like help with a computer or something, then you're still doing work that is as important, that is as productive as anyone who does it in an office. And it is that kind of traditional thinking that, you know, must be more and more overhauled. Uh, and there's actually, I think I did a story on them, but there's this uh, group called the uh, Ultranauts, which is uh, all remote. 75% of the work staff is autistic and they deal with technology and they deal with the technical side of things. And, you know, it's it just... Yeah. If, if I was with this thing where I needed supports, but I had a, a gift in a technical or technological field, I would I would be looking at the types of opportunities available in remote positions, because while there are a lot of crapshoots, uh, part of my language, um, there are also opportunities that are actually legitimate and that could be uh, very, very useful. And, you know, why, why report to an office when you maybe feel a little bit anxious, when you maybe feel like you're going to be dismissed by your peers, but your knowledge and your talent should be able to overcome all barriers. So I just, I just think that it's not that someone like David should uh, catch up with the world. It's that the world should catch up with David. Yeah, that's really well said. And yeah, you do raise an interesting point about the opportunity for remote work, especially in the last couple of years. And um, hopefully, you know, I'm very hopeful that David will still find the right situation that is not only uh, challenging, but also inclusive. And um, so I'll shift here to my next story, which covers an important policy change within the education system. And so I'll start off by saying that you've heard us on the show stress many times how important early diagnosis and intervention are to the field of autism and helping individuals to live satisfying and meaningful lives. Clearly, legislators of the state of Nebraska have been listening to our show. Or it's possible they've been listening to scientific research on this topic. 
But either way, they're now considering making autism screening a requirement for the start of school, much like a physical exam or vision test. If this bill is approved, Nebraska would be the first state to require autism assessment as a component of prescholastic screening. While federal law requires districts to identify and evaluate all children with disabilities, it does not specify how early or often states must screen for disabilities. The CDC and the Autism and Development Disabilities Monitoring Network within the CDC now recognize that one in 44 children have an ASD diagnosis. However, identification ranges widely from as few as one in 60 children in the state of Missouri to one in 26 children in California. Only 4,739 children were identified with ASD in Nebraska as of 2021, which is significantly below the national average. So this statistic clearly highlights a discrepancy in the diagnostic rate per state. And again, highlights the importance of awareness and access to qualified professionals in the field when it comes to getting a diagnosis. So Merrick, I'll turn this over to you. How do you feel about this movement? And do you think if it gets passed that other states will follow in the footsteps of Nebraska? Well, what I can do is I do know that one of my board members could possibly have her ears on the ground, um, Dorothy Ackland. Um, she lives in Nebraska. Um, and, you know, she uh, married with kids. So it, it's, uh, so I think that a story like this could possibly mean a lot to her. And of course, our previous rec coordinator, Kelly Coots, um, was uh, from the great state of Nebraska. So I find that to be, uh, you know, it would be interesting to ask the both of them what they think. Um, I think that, um, hmm, I think that that's probably a good idea as, as a way to sort of, uh, ferret out, you know, to, to basically be able to, to get the early diagnostics done and ready um, so that people could know, I guess, you know, what they should do regarding um, their uh, scholastic choices. So if there's like if, if there's no way that they can see a doctor or there's no way that they can get um, anything else done, then at least being able to get, um, hmm, let's see. Well, you take a state like Nebraska, that's a very rural state. Yeah. And there's not that many big cities and an initiative like this first and foremost, would make some sort of screening much more accessible uh, for those families. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how are they going to, 
how are they going to do the screenings? Is it that you have to do it with a, with an expert in the field? Are they going to have to pay out of their pocket to go to a doctor? I mean, to go to a neurologist or a psychologist or something, or are they gonna, or is it gonna be done um, in regards to like uh, school grounds or something like that? Is this is this something that parents will have to pay out of pocket for because? It, in, unless there's like a, a free autism screening clinic or something like that, um, it, it's it's just it's really a question because um, you know I I it's been a while since I've had to start up school, so I don't even remember what a physical exam or a vision test was like. But um, you know how how exactly. What is the methodology of of doing uh, this kind of uh, screening? Um, is it something that they're gonna help for free, or is it something that that you have to, you know, make a make an appointment with your doctor? And if you don't do that, um, I guess then that's basically, you know, you won't be able to. Uh, you won't be able to have your kids start school. Um, yeah. I, I think also another question is, what about screenings for other uh, conditions? Um, you know, what about a screening for ADHD? Because that can also uh, deal with, um, you know, scholastic results. Um, what about that? Because autism isn't the only invisible condition that can have uh, results down the line scholastically. You've got other, that's that's why you have the whole neurodiversity thing, because you have other things that may be a little bit invisible, but do they have screenings for that too? Um, is there a screening process for dyslexia? Is there a screening process for, you know, I mean, as as much as it may seem to be helpful to have autism screening, um, you know, there are a lot of other conditions out there that that make one wonder, okay, are are they gonna have any kind of uh, is that gonna be um, a, is that gonna be a part of the of a thought in the future? Yeah, you bring up two really valuable concerns there. Um, I'll probably do some homework and study up a little more on exactly within this legislation. You know, what is the proposal? Are they going to partner with pediatricians to where, you know, they're being funded by the state to be present in the school and, and conducted, conducting these screenings, or will there actually be a burden on the families to do this? Um, and also the, the title of the article is a little bit deceptive because when you talk about, you know, doing a vision or a hearing test, something that could be done by a school nurse, you know, a trained school nurse, obviously we know that the diagnostic process for autism is more comprehensive and it, when done right, it is pretty time consuming. 
And what about, you know, a wrong diagnosis? And let's say yeah. that the child, because this is, I guess, sort of why I felt like, uh, you know, where to even start talking about this at the very beginning. Um, but, you know, what if, what if there's a wrong diagnosis, you know, um, and basically it takes years to correct the problem. Could they uh, sue the state of Nebraska for that? I, I think that that's part of why um, it, it it's it's a good intention, but should it be um, you know mandated all over the state for every single school for every single population? I just don't know. I, I think that when we make decisions. Um, to me, it's it's all about the local level of things. I, I think that when a state gets involved, it's it's okay, it, and it may have good intentions, but it should all be at the most local level of things before you can decide. Okay, this should definitely be a statewide thing because. You're basically saying to every single school, every single spot in the state, you know, whether you have differences or not, this is this is what you have to do. And I just don't know if having kind of a it feels a little bit like one size fits all like it's legislation, but. I, and and it's something that I understand the good intentions behind this, you know, with the numbers increasing and everything like that, with our thoughts about early uh, diagnosis and intervention, uh, how the truth can set you free, all of that. I think that that is all very well intentioned. I just... I just don't know. It, it, it doesn't, as noble as it may seem, it doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's going to be a great legislative measure. Um, but, you know, there, there are probably plenty of people out there who are like, this is fantastic. This is great. So, but yeah. it, it really will depend because then you'll be hearing about parents who, uh, feel like you know that that they are being scooped up in this whole maelstrom of things and you'll hear them and basically if they don't do an autism screening then they have to deal with the fact that their kid cannot start the school and you know it, it's it's it, it can be a good thing but it can also be messy chaos and I think that with the way things are, it wouldn't surprise me if it does get passed. And I think that it really is, um, you know, it's really dependent on whether any activist groups or, you know, lobbying peoples in the different states are willing to um, put their put their power behind making sure that there are other bills in other states like this. I I, I do want to know um, in your research, have you found out why this uh, bill 
appeared? Was there like an a group of parents or an activist group or some kind of group that was basically saying, you know, we really want to get everyone hyped up and we want this to be, you know, something on the docket for, for the legislators to, to take on. You know, I don't know if it was driven by one specific group, parents, educators in that state. Um, I just know that it seemed to be in response to the most recent report given by the CDC on the current prevalence of autism Mm -hmm. and sort of how Nebraska seemed to be really um, low when it came to diagnoses compared to other states. And that's where I will say my conclusion would be that it's good that they're getting the wheels in motion um, on trying to, you know, maybe create more resources, create more ways for parents to get a diagnosis. Um, A lot of it will just depend on the kind of staff that they could have uh, at their disposal, right? If they're able to have trained and licensed pediatricians or neuropsychologists doing this screening, um, then it, it would be amazing. But the question just remains, how would they be, how will they be able to have people that are uh, professionals that are qualified to, um, you know, have, have good expertise on making the diagnosis. Yeah. My, my general feeling of this is about the measure of enforcement. And uh-huh. it's, it's a discussion about many other things going on is about, you know, whenever you have a new bill, or whenever you have a new law or something like that, then you have to make sure that it gets enforced or it gets enforced properly or else the law or the bill or whatever doesn't exist or it's null and void pretty much. So it's, it's really, to me, a little bit of it is about how it's going to get enforced. Are you basically going to keep uh, a parent's kid from going to school if they aren't going to get an autism screening test or whatever it is? Um, if they live in an area and, you know, um, they, they may be, or, or, you know, there, there are, I guess what I'm thinking also is about the different variables and circumstances, because like I said, this is a statewide mandate. This is not, you know, something that some city or some um, town is experimenting with. This is a statewide thing. So, you know, could uh, some parts of the state, no matter how good they are, could some parts of the state cause the state to have blowback because of the statewide mandate here? Yeah. And that's that's sort of. I, I, I apologize if it seems like I'm getting too political here, although this is a bill that's going on by the legislators of a, of a state of the U.S., um, but that, that's sort of what my feeling is. It's about the statewide mandate, and it's also about um, the measure of enforcement because um and and also it's also about the results of doing this that that really made me think to myself 
there are some really, really good ideas here, I think. And because it is under the purview of the school system, it's, it's legitimately done, but it also is a question of, is, is this going to, this will probably help, but as usual, I have to be the cynic on things. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, last point I'll make is what my hope would be for a situation like this is um, it would be a great time to try to implement some of the digital or AI powered applications that have been tested out for diagnosis. Um, We talked about Cognoa several months ago, which was designed by Geraldine Dawson and some other researchers at Duke University. That's an app that has a high reliability when it comes to making diagnoses. So you, yeah, I I think that, I think that a good question to ask would be, you know, why is it significantly below the national average? And I know that there are rural communities and populations in Nebraska and the like, but is it really because of the of of access or is it because of other things like uh okay so one in 60 children in missouri let's think about um i have to think about the other plains uh, states but i do believe that that a state like california it wouldn't surprise me if they do something like this um I and I've also heard that New Jersey is has a very dense uh, population of individuals with autism. So maybe it will also uh, take into matters in New Jersey. Um, I just I I, uh, like I said before, it's it's about results, enforcement and um, statewide mandate. So. That's that's what my thought is about that. All right. Well, okay. Um, now on to the human interest stories. Um, so, um, okay. So March 15th is St. Patrick's Day, which celebrates a beloved saint of Ireland. Why St. Patrick, of course? From one of the few times in our show's history, I've decided to go global and to find someone who would be a representative of the autism community in Ireland. I was pleased to find one in the founder and CEO of As I Am, Adam Harris, who is responsible for what might be one of Ireland's most well-known autism charities. Diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of five, Adam Harris knew the ins and outs of the understandings of autism in Ireland. At the age of 17 in 2013, he decided to start the As I Am organization in order to generate greater awareness, acknowledgement, and acceptance of autism in Ireland. Today, As I Am supports self-advocates, families, communities, and public and private sector entities to encourage greater support for individuals with ASD. His brother Simon is currently the Minister of Health in Ireland and was inspired by Adam's journey to promote and support autism awareness there, whether at a local university or a retailer. Simon considers Adam a pride and joy and inspiration to him. 
Supposedly, people ask him if he is related to Adam, not the other way around. What a heartwarming story. There are plenty of interviews and videos showcasing Adam Harris and his talents, which we will unveil in our show notes. So, Nate, here is my question to you. Well, first of all, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Secondly, um, I guess my question would be... um, Okay, so what I would ask you is, what what do you, um, when we use the term World Autism Month, what does a term like that mean to you? Uh, Do you support the terminology or do you believe that there's a better way to explain what April is? Well, First of all, happy St. Patrick's Day to you and our listeners as well. It's a very festive and fun holiday, so I hope everyone can celebrate accordingly. In terms of the in terms of the term World Autism Month, I do think it's a it's a sufficient term. I think um, you know I was just reading an article. A journal article published. Uh, I was actually reviewing it, for, and and it was on autism awareness in Saudi Arabia, and the awareness in that country. Um, you know, they did an awareness screener um, that they've used throughout many countries in the world, and the awareness in that country um, was still you know, 20 to 30 percentage points below um, what was considered to be the average. And that's not to single out that country at all, but it does bring the point up that there are so many regions in the world and many individual countries where the awareness, the knowledge of autism um, is is maybe not on par with some other countries and every country has work to do but at the same time I do like using the, the term world um, because I think it stresses that this is a human issue this is a worldwide issue and um, every country needs to link together pool their resources together and um, you know, come up with as much research and as much um, innovation in the field as possible. And then I like um, just including the term autism versus some, sometimes you hear the term, you know, autism awareness month or whatnot. Um, I think all things autism are important. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> make a long story short i do like the term yeah so um the person who actually uh came up with uh the alternate term for us um in our board uh is a uh, board member uh mike demuro and uh he's uh quite proactive within the community and he's definitely an inspirational story for everyone. He actually has this uh, mission of his to go and be a part of Uber Eats and deliver food in all 50 states. And so I 
when when we have him on this uh podcast it will be really really cool to talk to him about all the different things he has done and he said to us you know world autism month and then one uh a few of our other board members were in agreement and i thought that it was quite a good neutral but moving term and i think that um it's uh definitely something that that should be embraced because not every part of the world uh understands autism the same way and so if we are able to unite every part of the world with a deliberate and universal understanding of the term then that's that it's basically you know whatever you want to do around it um that you, that you know that this is something that exists that it's real and that you know it, it's not exactly a death sentence for people who have it so i i think that people like adam harris and people all over the world who are able to shine a light on what autism is uh within their communities their countries you know wherever they are they they all deserve um to to be a part of the greater uh you know the greater communications and messaging and yeah. um it's really interesting and i'm not saying all this because uh he just accepted my connection on linkedin um but uh yeah i i think that that's uh that it's really really cool um i i uh at the age of 17 i, I feel like i was still uh uh describing my teenage angst to others um and uh writing very very poor songs and lyrics and this guy started the as i am organization so <laughs> i don't know what to say maybe uh wow is appropriate <laughs> yeah that's, that's very impressive yeah <laughs> okay so the last story is about um yep we're finally heading into the the direction of reality television <laughs> um bachelor star demi burnett um i don't always watch reality television but a lot of people too they enjoy the drama the people and usually that the spotlight is on something that may mean a lot to them many of them are really game shows with strong documentary elements to them the first big reality shows were like that one of the biggest is a series of reality shows called the bachelor and the bachelorette where a group of women or men compete to see if they can win the heart of whomever is the Bachelor or Bachelorette. On season 23 of The Bachelor were a series of women who were vying for the love of one Colton Underwood, who was a professional in the NFL. One of the more popular women in that season was Demi Burnett, a blonde bombshell from Texas, who lasted halfway through the season before she got eliminated. She would make cameos for the other spinoffs of The Bachelor series, including Bachelor in Paradise, where she ended up opening up about her bisexuality and pursuing a same-sex relationship with her eventual fiancé, Christian Haggerty. While she broke ground on opening up about her bisexuality, 
during her uh, time with the Bachelor in Paradise part of the franchise. Last month was another turning point for her when she mentioned on her Instagram page about her psychological evaluation of autism and her acceptance of it. She has decided to address it through a series of pictures related to how the diagnosis of ASD feels to her. Yet there is still not much more behind it than her announcement. Maybe a later story will update about her journey to her diagnosis. So, Nate, what are your experiences like with reality television, and how can reality stars increase awareness and exposure to things like ASD? Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm pretty proud that it took us 24 episodes, at least before we covered a story on reality TV. I think in comparison to most of the podcasts out there, we've held out for a long time. So, yeah, we're, we're trying we're trying to fit for the art crowd here. So if we talk about three hour movies that nobody has watched, that that's what we'll do. But we're trying to now sell ourselves for the commercial market of people. Right. And I want to preface my answer here by saying that this is out of my comfort zone. I'm guessing it's probably out of Merrick's comfort zone as well. Um so <laughs> I'll try. Well, no, I don't always watch reality television, but I have done so in the past. I've seen Rock of Love. I've seen that Tia, whatever her name is, that show that they had. Um, basically, all all variations of the dating game. And, you know, Bachelor, Bachelorette, it's all part of that same. You get to ooh and ah over romance and whatever. And then maybe after the show ends, then you you get uh, a moment where you realize, okay, so they got divorced after a year or they broke up after like two weeks. And, you know, the, the fact that you the fact that there can be spoilers for something that's supposed to air live is also I feel to be a little bit. I, I don't know if you would call that reality, but I, I have enjoyed reality television in the past. Well, if you would consider Kitchen Nightmares or Chopped as reality TV shows on the Food Network, then I, I guess I have some experience. But oh, yeah, I mean, you know, basically anything that could be the candid camera of today, you know, you can call that reality television. You're on candid camera, Nate. How do you feel about that? I feel like um, I need to stir up more drama, though, if if uh, if that's the case. Well, you're on candid web camera, although no one can see you. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> that that well, would be a new variation. So someone hacks into your webcam, and you're on what candid web camera? Well, you know, jokes aside, uh, I think there is. Um, there's definitely a positive message here about acceptance and um, whether I like it or not, reality stars do have a lot of influence, right? They yeah. have um, millions of fans and followers on social media. And so um, they, they have a lot of power. And so I give Demi uh, credit here for being this open and you know it's um 
it could potentially be seen as a risky move and um, hopefully she's helping many of her fans to uh, feel more accepted. Well, look at what, uh, you know, the transition of Bruce to Caitlyn Jenner did and how big that was to the whole, you know, world. You had magazines, you had interviews that that became a huge uh, turning point in how people assess the the trans community. So, and when you think about it, while he was an Olympian, uh, you know, he definitely became a lot more well-known as a reality TV star. So, you know, because of that, he was able to, uh, to, create greater awareness and exposure to you know the trans community through his through her example yeah that's a really good point i um yeah i agree that there's there's importance and value here yeah but that's uh that's pretty much all i can really uh offer on it (laughs) okay so uh before we go we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners and because of that we will be seeing you again in april with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general i remember as we say as they say for